Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. If you're interested in attending in person, our weekend services happen every week on Saturday evenings at 5 or Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. About 20 years ago, May 20th, 2000, it was a damp, uh, uh, gray day. Grassy field in Memphis, a portable city had sprung up overnight. About 40,000 college students had, had gathered together for the, uh, I think it was the fourth Passion Conference. It was the first one that they had outdoors. That day, uh, a guy named John Piper, who was a pastor that wasn't all that well known at that point in time, I got up about one o'clock in the afternoon to preach. And before he got up, Piper had asked God for a prophetic word that would ripple, have ripple effect to the ends of the earth and to eternity. And that day he got it. It's a sermon that I think in some ways will mark Christian history. Some people argue it's a sermon that uh, changed a generation. I want to do a dangerous thing this morning. I want you to listen to part of it, the, the, probably the most memorable part known as the seashell illustration because it's so powerful. But then I'm going to ask you to be gracious and let me talk a while after that. It's a tough act to follow, okay? But I'm going to hold you to that. So would you listen with me? John Piper. You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ and you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart, you don't have to have good looks, you don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them, which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference, because it isn't you. It's what you're gripped with. But one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. 
All you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell. And that's all you want. You don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. That's a tragedy in the making. That is a tragedy in the making. About three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and then in retirement, partnering up with Ruby, also pushing 80, and going from village to village in Cameroon. And the brakes give way, over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost, a, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked. It is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. 
That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. God, look at my boat, God. Well, not for Ruby and not for Laura. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. Don't waste your life. Raises a question, though. How do you make sure you don't? How do you live in such a way that you make sure your life counts? You know, there are three ways to, to view life. One way is to, to believe that it's all about me. Life is about my agenda, my dreams, my desires, my happiness, my comfort. Most of the world lives that way with themselves at the center. Second way to view life, and there's a lot of believers who go through life this way, is to believe that it's It's all about me, but Jesus is a nice addition. I mean, it's it's about my dreams and my comfort and my happiness, but you know, Jesus will help me get there. Oh, and by the way, in a time of crisis, he's nice to have around. You reach out and he helps. The third way, is to go through life and understand that it's all about him. Life is about his agenda and his dream and his plan. And the amazing thing is we are given an opportunity to play a part in that story if we choose. Only that last way of going through life keeps you from wasting it. It's about him. This morning is uh, Mission Sunday. In other words, it's a moment we step back and we try to take a glimpse of the big picture of what God is doing in the world. Remind ourselves of his story, what his agenda is and what his mission for us is and how we can play a part. I want us to do that this morning, and the way I want us to do that is by taking a 
a close look at a very familiar passage. We label it as the Great Commission. You've heard it before. It's Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. I picked this passage because it's one of those places where Jesus is crystal clear about our mission, the part we're called to play in his story. The Great Commission in our Bible is, the form, is in the form of four commands, and it is sandwiched between an amazing declaration and an incredible promise. And I want us to look at all of that this morning to understand what we're called to. Look with me at, at, at Matthew chapter 28. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. This is immediately after his resurrection. And this is the last, last thing in the book of Matthew. So he put it there to give it final stress, to say, hey, this is really important. If you get nothing else, hold on to this. Hold on to this. They went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, look, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Great Commission. Um, it begins with this amazing declaration where Jesus says, look, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Now, in the face of that, that, that seems like an incredible statement. I, I, I mean, this is the man who was just crucified by the Roman authorities as a criminal. This is the man who was rejected by the religious establishment. This is the person who was scorned by the people, uh, betrayed by one of his closest followers, denied by the others, the one who seems to have lost everything, including his own life. And yet he shows up and says, no, 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 I really won. And he did, right? The resurrection proves that he won. But understand what that resurrection tells us. It tells us that he really is now in the place of all authority over everything. This is the one whom Caesar's knee will bow to. He is saying he is the Lord, not simply of the church, but the Lord of history, the Lord of families and tribes and countries and communities and nations, planets. The Lord of heaven and earth, it's their way of saying everything that exists in the whole universe, he's over it all. He's Lord of all. When we say Christ is Lord, that's what we mean. It's not a personal statement, it's not a political statement, it's a universal and cosmic statement. That's absolutely true. Because of his death and resurrection, he is now king. It's a kingdom statement. 
this is the culmination of the story that has been being told in the scriptures, right? God created uh, this world that was good and in it he placed Adam and Eve and called them to co-rule with him and gave them freedom and they chose to rebel. And when they rebelled, everything fell, everything became broken. Creation broke, human relationships broke. Our relationship with God broke. But God does something, he steps in, he has a plan. He's going to bring about a restoration of his kingdom and his relationships with his people. Begins with Abraham and then Israel and finally it culminates with the arrival of Jesus who when he comes, John the Baptist says, hey, the kingdom is at hand. What's that mean? It means that the king, Jesus, has broken in and and reestablished a a, a beachhead, inaugurated his kingdom on earth. He's bringing about the restoration. And then it, it, it culminates with his death and resurrection. Because in that death, he defeats sin, Satan, and death itself. And as a result, Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of God, the place of authority, as the King, the Lord of the universe. And Jesus Jesus is saying, you got to understand this because, you know what, I'm going to put you on mission, but the motive for the mission is this, that I'm King. Right, because he, he makes that statement that all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, And then he says this little word, therefore. Because this reality is true, I'm going to put you on mission. In other words, the the key to understanding our motivation for mission is the kingship of Jesus. The the commission flows out of his authority. The reason we are to, to make disciples is because that is the, the natural response to his kingship. People need to be disciples of Jesus and fall on their knees before him because he's king. You know, the reason we want to make disciples is is not simply for other people's benefits. It's not because they need forgiveness. It's not because they need meaning in their life. It's not because they need purpose and significance. It's not because they, they, they need peace. It's not because their lives are a mess and they need fixed. All those things are true and do happen, but all those things are about us, and they're not the ultimate motivation for us to be on mission making disciples. No, ultimately, it's not about us. Ultimately, it's about him and his glory because he is king. And you see, if we really believe that Jesus is king, then we are absolutely convinced that he deserves our allegiance, our devotion, our loyalty, and not only ours, but that of the whole world. And it is his right to rule that is the basis for global missions. That statement, the kingship of Jesus, is absolutely key. Ultimately, we do missions not for the sake of people as much as for the glory and the reality of God, Jesus, who is king. So that's the motivation, this this incredible declaration. And then we get four commands that constitute the commission itself, right? Go make disciples 
baptize and teach. Actually, in the Greek, there are not four commands. There's only one command, and the one command is to make disciples. The others are participles. I know you don't care about that, but it, it tells us this, that the focus has to be on the making disciples, the, the go and teach and baptize. They're just the means of how those things get done, and that's important. So let's look at them. First of all, he says, go literally. It should be translated as you go. I mean, think of who he's talking to. He, he, he's talking to at that moment, 11 guys who have just given their complete lives to him, have left their families, have left their communities, have left their jobs, have given up their dreams and their aspirations, all to follow this, this crazy rabbi. They've, they're going. That's not the issue. So he says, as you go. Jesus, you know what? Jesus assumes that if we're his follower, that if we're one of his disciples, we will be going. He can't imagine that we would be withdrawing or not involved in the mission. He can't imagine that we would isolate ourselves or hide ourselves or withdraw. Rather, he always assumes that we would be penetrating and infiltrating and permeating the culture and trying to work into places of influence so we can breathe salt and light. He's just assuming that. Unfortunately, sometimes we take this word off and say it's its own command and applicable only to some people. What we say is, you know, God may be calling you to global missions. You know, if you're one of those super saints or those special disciples, then you're to go. And that's not at all what he's saying. That's a total fallacy. He's not saying this is a command for some. He's, he's saying, no, the command to make disciples is for everybody. I'm just assuming you're going. The issue is not whether you go or not. The issue is where are you, where, where are you going? The issue is do you understand that where God has placed you in the sphere of influence and the people you're around, that, that's your mission field wherever you are. Now, he does direct people different places to exercise that mission, but we're all going. He says, as you go, uh, folks, that's part of what it means to follow Jesus. Going is not a select, uh, not a responsibility for a select few, it's for everyone, everyone. And if we don't see our sphere of influence and the people we're around as our field of mission, we've missed the point. So as you go, he says, make disciples. Um, a disciple is, a, is an apprentice, uh, a student, a trainee, someone who gives their total allegiance to someone else so that they can become like their master. I told you before that my wife is an anaplastologist, whatever that is. She makes artificial eyes, noses, ears, has done so for a long, long time. She learned it by being an apprentice to her father, who poured into her and taught her to do what he could do. And then a few years ago, my daughter Chelsea decided she wanted to do the same thing. So she became an apprentice to my wife. And the goal was is that she would learn to do what Barb does. And after five or six years, she's, she's gotten there. 
and now the practice is hers. You see, that's what it means to be a disciple, to put yourself under someone so that you can learn everything from them and become like them, become like the teacher. Understand this, and this is important. The command to make disciples is not simply a command to get converts or get people to make decisions or simply a call to evangelism. But oftentimes, we look at decisions made or converts as our measure of success. And if we get people to make a decision, walk an aisle, pray a prayer, raise their hand, we think, oh yeah, we're, we're fulfilling the Great Commission. No, you're not. No, we're not. Because it's not a command simply to get people to make a decision. It's a command to make disciples. Now, conversion is a great start, making decisions. I'm all for decisions. I'm all for conversions. I'm all for commitments. But Jesus is calling people to more than simply a decision. He's calling them to apprenticeship, to training, to total allegiance, to discipleship to a completely different way of living. We we need to be careful how we package and present the gospel. We often give them a shorthand presentation of the gospel. And, And I've done it, and I've done it from this stage. And you've heard it, right? It's pretty simple. You're a sinner, Jesus loves you, and died for your sin, trust in him, and you get to go to heaven. Folks, if all I need to do to get forgiveness and go to heaven is pray a prayer and accept Jesus as my Savior, I'm in. And everybody's in. I mean, who would say no to that deal? No one. The problem is that kind of thinking and presentation leads people to making Jesus a nice addition to their life. And that's, that's, the problem with that is that's not the gospel. You will not find that formulation of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament. And if you think you do, come show me when we're done. Because it's not there. It's not in the gospels. It's not in the the epistles and the letters. Never is the gospel presented that way in the New Testament. Yet that's, you know what that is? That's a, a packaging of a partial plan of salvation tailored for consumers and popularized over the last hundred years used to get decisions. There's some truth in it, but it's not the gospel. Here's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has defeated sin, Satan, and death itself, and thus has given us forgiveness and has been made king, and now is bringing about the ultimate restoration of his kingdom. That's the gospel that you see Jesus preaching when he goes about preaching the gospel of the kingdom that you see John preaching when he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the gospel that gets taught through your epistles. It's this good news, the evangelion. That word was used to talk about announcements made about by kings about their kingship. The good news, put it simply, is Jesus is now king. And everything else flows from that. If he's king, we give him everything. When we package the gospel in simply consumer terms and speak of 
Jesus saving and being the answer to all our problems, but leave out his kingship. And the expectation of discipleship, we are miscommunicating what Jesus taught. I think sometimes when we present the gospel, we need to uh, add some disclaimers and tell people why they shouldn't follow Jesus, right? If, it, if you follow Jesus, it means you have to give up control and you have to give up leadership. If you follow Jesus, it means you have to repent. In other words, change your way of thinking about everything, change your life. If you follow Jesus, it means sacrifice and no longer living for yourself. If you follow Jesus, it means giving up your dreams and taking on his dreams. If you follow Jesus, it means giving up your agenda and taking on his agenda. If you follow Jesus, he's putting you on mission for his kingdom, and it's going to cost you everything. That's the implication of the gospel, and that's what we need to preach. Because if we don't, we get half-hearted devotion, we get nominalism, we get people who are just uh, followers of Jesus in name only. He's not a nice addition. Jesus is not a nice addition. It's the trite phrase, you know, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. There is truth in that. It's never an add-on. And then notice the scope, right? He says, go and make disciples, what, of all nations. Uh, the Greek there is ta ethne. And it's not describing a, a political nation state, or, or, but rather people groups, uh, people who share a common language and a cult, common culture and a common terri, uh, territory. Jesus envisions worshipers and followers present among every culture, language group, of the planet coming to him. In other words, he's saying, make disciples, that means we're, we are to be reaching the world. And Revelation gives us this great glimpse of how it's all going to end up. Revelation chapter seven. After this, I looked. This is the end of the story, folks. I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus is about reaching the world. And God does not privilege one nation or ethnicity or language or tribe or nation or people above another. Eventually they will all bow to him. Jesus is Lord and has a right to be. And if we give our allegiance to anything less than him, if we give it in to any political party or country or nation, we've missed it. That's why in the New Testament we are called to be what? Citizens of heaven. Because now our king is Jesus and our allegiance to is to him and everything else pales in significance or comparison. Just a, a note, if you're here this morning and you're checking Christianity out, I want you to understand this is what it means to follow Jesus. He does give forgiveness and purpose and meaning, and that comes by grace. We don't earn it. It's something we receive from him as we give our allegiance to him. But understand that that decision, that commitment, means you are now to be an apprentice 
and demands your whole life. And you could never make a better decision than that. But it's a decision that changes everything. Make disciples as you go, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the ancient world to be baptized into the name of somebody uh, uh, um, meant to come under their authority and to give them your allegiance. In other words, it, it was a way of signifying that you were giving up ownership of yourself and you were giving it to that person. In a sense, when you were baptized into someone's name, you were becoming their property. So to be baptized in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, means that now you give them, him, your supreme loyalty. And your loyalty is no longer to your, your biological family or your culture or your tribe or your ethnic group or your nation state. It's rather to the triune God. And that's where discipleship begins. In other words, baptism was a proclamation of your allegiance. And it's interesting, in, in ancient days, baptism was typically a corporate event done in public space, not a private affair done in a building. And why? Because it was a community statement that you were now giving your allegiance to Jesus and becoming part of his community. In other words, baptism was always carried out in the context of becoming part of the church. Because this disciple thing, being an apprentice, is not something you, you can do on your own. You have to do it in community with others who are also becoming apprentices to King Jesus. Absolutely essential. It's not an individual journey. And get this that act of baptism in public that said, I'm now giving my allegiance to Jesus and part of this community communicated an exclusive commitment. In other words, when you're baptized, that one name you're baptized into is now your master and nobody else. You have no other gods, not money or power or fame or sex or success or whatever. It's exclusive. That's why in New Testament times, oftentimes baptism was seen as the mark of conversion. Because it, it was the sign of allegiance. He says... Make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Everything. Jesus is looking for people who give him total obedience. In other words, this is not some kind of smorgasbord Christianity. It's not a pick and choose religion. I like this, I don't like that. I, I kind of agree with this, I don't agree with that. I'll obey here, but you know, I'm going to do my own thing here. Uh uh uh. Well, that's what happens. We have people who say, you know, I like what Jesus teaches about forgiveness and love and grace, and man, that's cool, and you know, about helping the poor and standing up for justice. I'm, I'm in on that. But I don't want anything to do with this ethic on sexuality or holiness or, or, or purity. And then we get the other side. Oh, I like this notion of holiness and purity and the ethics around sexuality. I just, just don't talk to me about loving my enemy. Don't talk to me about loving others. 
people I don't like or people don't have my color of skin or people who are not in my country or I don't, uh-uh. No, Jesus wants the whole package, and the whole package is simply this. This, this is everything summed up in a, a, a short phrase. We are to love God, and we are to love people. And if our lives are not marked by loving God and being obedient to what he says and loving people, the whole spectrum, if that's not the dominant value that can expressed in our life, then we're, we're, we're not following Jesus. This notion of obedience is not optional. This is not a, 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 a commitment that allows you to, to do just what you like and what you want. Because right now, right, when you follow Jesus, he's the one in charge. And what that does is it, it makes us live in this tension. On the one hand, none of us are perfect. We're all struggling. We're all trying to figure out. We're all broken. And, and we want to live in grace and love and understanding and forgiveness. And that's awesome. And that's reality. And that should be expressed when we gather as a church that we take people where they're at. But on the other hand, for ourselves and for others, we're to set this incredibly high bar, right, of total obedience loving God, loving people, living the way of love. And that's what we're working towards, and we're all on this journey, and we can't become complacent. We have to live in this holy discontent, this tension that says, I'm not where I want to be, and I, I experience God's grace and forgiveness, but that's where I'm going. And when we lower the bar and settle for mediocrity, We've missed what Jesus is calling us to. So that's the Great Commission. We are to be involved in this mission as we go through life of making disciples, teaching, and baptizing people to become his disciples as well. And then at the end, he gives us this incredible promise, right? Verse 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know what we like to do? We like to rip that promise out of the context of where it's given. Because that's a promise that's given to people who are on mission. He's saying as you go and you're making disciples and it gets hard and it gets tough and you get persecuted and things don't go your way, but you're on mission, you're doing what I called you to do, you're about the kingdom, you're about living out your allegiance to Jesus, I want you to know I'm right there with you. Now, if you want to go do your own thing, that's fine, but don't look over your shoulder. I'm with you on mission. And that means everything, because remember, remember the one who is with you, right? He is the one who has all authority. In other words, there is nothing in heaven or earth which Jesus does not have power over. He has authority over the stars and the galaxies and the planets. He has authority over the wind and the rain and the lightning and the waves and the floods and the fires. He has authority on the molecular level and, the atom- and in the atomic realm and over every piece of DNA, over all plants and animals and bacteria and viruses and parasites and germs and everywhere, over every human body. 
He has authority over every heart and breath, every nerve. He has authority over every nation and government and army and terrorist and leader. He has authority over every business and industry. He has authority over every family and neighborhood and community. He has authority over every church, every soul. He has authority over every moment of existence. He rules over them all. And get this, that's true always. To the very end of the age. And when he says the end of the age, he's saying, look, understand, I'm in charge till the end. And at the end, guess what? I'm going to turn all things and redeem all things and bring everything to my purpose and my glory and if we love him, our good. That's the one who's with us till the end of the age. And at the end of the age, he wins. If we're on mission, we have nothing to fear because in the end, he's going to make all things new. So giving your life to that mission is how you keep from wasting it. So what should you do? I think what you do is you play your part in the grand story, right? I'm going to put it this way. You know, you pray, you give, you go. You know, you, you got to understand the mission. You got to understand what God's about, what he's doing in the world. That's why we beat this drum, take perspectives. Because if you don't take perspectives, you're never going to understand the purpose and mission of God globally and for your life as deeply as you could. It's this incredible opportunity. And I don't know why, but this class has a transformative effect. Everybody I talk to says the experience just changes them. And they can't even necessarily point to a moment in the class. It's just the overall experience changes you. It gives you a different mindset about your faith. Take the class. It's, it's a lot of work. It's 15 weeks. You have to read. You have to show up. But it's worth it. And it's 250 bucks. But if you can't afford it, let me know. We'll pay for it. We believe it in the class that much. Take perspectives. You can sign up out there. Second, pray. And, and, and when I say this, this is not trite or cliche. Uh, um, but part of the way we participate in what God is doing in the world is to pray. We, we have a list of global intercessors, and what we do every month, we send them a list of all the prayer requests of people in ministry and, and missions around the world. And it's hugely important that you talk to any of those people, they'll, they'll tell you how important it is to have people pray with them, because when they do, they become partners. Give. I mean, adopt a missionary or a ministry and commit to pray for them and give to their ministry. I mean, 
Rick and Sue are on this phenomenal project of getting this translation in the language of the Dungan. We, we made this commitment over 20 years ago to do whatever it takes to get a church planted with the Dungan people. This is a key piece to that. If you can get the scriptures into their language so that they can understand it, that's huge. And that's their goal in the next two years to make that happen. Well, it's going to take some money. But it's this great opportunity for us to participate in a global way just by giving. Let's talk to them today. Or, or Maud Hansen, who is, is gearing up to go to France to work with Muslims in France, is raising funds so she can get on the field. She'll be out there as well. Or if nothing else, adopt a compassion kit. I mean, that's easy. It's 38 bucks a month. Anybody can do that. And if you don't have one, you should have one. It changes a kid's life for the gospel. And then lastly, go. I mean, you have an opportunity coming up in just a few weeks, Waterstone serves just to get a taste of what like local ministries are out there and how to be involved. You can do that easily here, but maybe God's calling you to go globally. Rick and Sue are praying for someone to get the same passion they have for the Dungan to fill their shoes when they're done. Maybe that's you. No, pray, give, go. So let me end with this thought. thought. When you stand before the creator of the earth to give an account of what you did, will you point to a shell collection, a nice swing and a big boat? Or will you be able to say, no, I lived a life on mission. Jesus is the cosmic king. And because he is, we must engage in the mission of making disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching, knowing he will be with us until the end of the age. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you know, the amazing thing is, is you give us the opportunity, in fact, the privilege to participate with you in your story. Lord, help us not miss that. Help us not miss that this morning. We pray in Christ's name.